Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is Robert Mugga, the co-founder of the Egadapi Institute. Robert, how are you doing? Terrific. Yeah, I got through some difficult pronunciations here, so first stage is over. And um, if you would, can you let it? listeners know what the Institute does and uh, what your work there consists of? Sure. Well, so we're a, an impartial and independent, what we call a think-and-do tank. Uh, which means we like to provoke some uh, progressive thinking, but we also like to develop solutions for for some of the things we talk about. Um, and and the, the Institute was set up in 2011. We focus on five big themes that are all pretty much inter- interconnected, but I'll distinguish them for the sake of clarity. Uh, first, we work on what's called citizen security, so everything to do with police and criminal justice and penal reform. Uh, we also work on drug policy. So we look at progressive approaches to drug policy. Uh, We do a fair bit of work on cities, uh, specifically building out dashboards and new tools to help promote safety in cities. Uh, And then we work on cybersecurity, digital rights, and then finally we work on international peace and and security. Um, And the way I usually describe the Gagape Institute is, is we work in Latin America as well as Africa, but we really try to mobilize data and evidence to try to solve problems. So we're not rooted or firmly embedded in any particular ideological position. We, we, we really try to go where the data takes us. That's smart. So what are some of the most interesting or critical problems to you that we can talk about? You know, you guys do a lot. We probably can't talk about everything, but what's, what's the top few that you'd most like to talk about and expand on? Well, I mean, I think for us, there are a number of huge problems we're facing in, especially Latin America. Um, this is the world's most violent region measured by homicide. You know, we got 8% of the world's population, about 38% of the homicides, one in three people who dies every single year is probably from this part of the world. And I'm in the homicide Mecca, Brazil. I mean, 60,000 homicides a year. So for somebody who spent the last 20 years studying uh, and trying to mobilize solutions around violence, I, I guess I found myself in the right place. So that's a good place to start. How do we deal with violence? How do we understand violence? What can we do to to respond to it, disrupt it, interrupt it, prevent and reduce it. Um, the other, I think, big area that we're interested in working is really around how do we mobilize technology, um, or new technologies in particular, to, to better get a handle on the distribution of violence and to help enable, empower, uh, support cities and city officials uh, to respond to it. Because we really believe that especially in Latin America, where 85% of the population lives in cities, it's going to be cities that are going to be able, you know, that are going to really have to respond to this challenge if we're going to get anywhere. Right. Well, I've, I've seen, um, through reading various books and publications, for instance, in New York, uh, this may be in many cities, but they would track crimes, where they happened, the type of crime, when they happened. And they were able to create maps and see that certain crimes were tied to certain, literally even to certain street corners, and some were seasonal, um, caused by various factors. Um, I think Malcolm Gladwell even wrote about it in one of his books. Uh, have you guys developed any systems like that that give you a map that 
that literally shows you maybe t- down to the corner where crime is happening or where it's not happening? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, <clears throat> maps are really where it all starts. Uh, I, I mean, we're, we're, we're a species that evolved in a way spatially, uh, and, and maps concentrate minds like no pie chart ever could. Um, and, and we, the last couple of years, we've been working uh, on trying to understand sort of the national distribution of crime and violence around the world. We developed all sorts of data visualizations to capture national and even subnational data. Uh, but where the rubber hits the road is really at the micro level, the, at the city level, the neighborhood level. Um, and, and one of the things we're discovering over the last decades, uh, really the last decade, by Monash, is, is, is that crime is, is hyper-concentrated. We've always known that crime is relatively sticky and certain forms of crime are contagious between certain kinds of people in certain places. But now more than ever, we know that crime is hyper-concentrated in time, in place, and people. So people like the ones you've mentioned, including uh, Gladwell, but also folks like Gary Slutkin, who, who runs a fabulous NGO uh, called um, uh, Ceasefire um, and Cure Violence, Rodrigo Guerrero, who's an epidemiologist, Steven Pinker, who's, who's a celebrated uh, sort of thinker from Harvard, all of them have come to the same conclusion, which is that the vast majority of crime takes place, as you said, in a very small loca- set of locations. In fact, if you look at any city um, around the world, you'll find that between 90-95% of all the homicides concentrate in less than 2% of the street addresses. Here in Rio, wow, really? I, it's incredible. 99% of homicides in Rio de Janeiro, big old city of 6 million people, occur in less than 1% of the street corners, but it's not just space. It's wow. also time. If you consider that there's 168 hours in a work week, um, about, about half of all violent crime takes place in just 10 of those hours between Friday night, Saturday, early morning and Saturday night and Sunday, early morning. And then the final thing is, is that crime also concentrates among certain kinds of people, but usually certain associated with certain kinds of behaviors. So where you see people who are, you know, heavily into alcohol, um, who are involved in, let's say, negative peer influences, uh, who've been involved in, in brushes of the law and are repeat offenders, they tend to also be the folks who are both most likely to perpetrate and or be victims of crime. And so the moment you have these three insights, place, time, behaviors, you actually can start designing systems, including systems that use machine learning, to better anticipate, understand, predict where crime is likely to take place. So um, putting this into perspective, a couple of years ago, we noticed here in Rio, and we've worked across many, many other cities, but let's focus on Rio, that most of the crime mapping in this quite violent city was done with paper and pencil by hand, or even with literally pins in a map. There was no system to take the event uh, that may have occurred in a particular area and then ultimately digitize it. And we knew from the experience in New York and other other. Uh, parts of the United States, but there have been some pretty big advances with CompStat and, and other sort of computer-generated approaches to mapping crime. So we also knew that Rio couldn't afford the kind of systems that were being used in New York. So what to do? We, um, after a process of a long process of working with the police here and, and the, the various public authorities, uh, we got it together a coalition of private actors, business folks, who then invested or close to a million dollars into designing a system that could map uh, crime, but that would digitize data, that would systematize it in, in, a, in a kind of spatial temporal map, and that would allow for police, the 50-odd thousand police uh, officers in the city, to have access in close to real time to crime as it occurred. Because if you don't have that, if you don't have a baseline wow. of data, 
extremely difficult to to come up with meaningful hotspot policing or meaningful interventions uh, that, that that best allocate your resources. So we were able to reduce the time it took from an event occurring to police officers re- receiving the data from 14 days to about 20 minutes in just literally by just digitizing the information, which is radical in the transformation in the police. But just to answer your question, in addition to that, um, one of the quid pro quos we had, because recall we're a think tank and, and we're not for profit, was that we could make some of this data public. And um, we, dec- we decided to hook up with a group called Via Science in Boston, which is a, a mathematics and predictive analytic, analytics firm, um, to design a, the world's first public-facing predictive crime mapping tool, which essentially uses a Bayesian, so Bayesian statistics to be able to anticipate the likelihood of crime occurring by time of day, uh, by 250 square meter blocks in a city, um, and, you know, looking well into the future. So it's like a weather, think of it as a weather forecast for crime. Um, right. And we, we designed this app, put it out there last year um, using a, a Google Earth API. Uh, and it's now become a kind of public resource for citizens and tourists visiting the city. So they have a better sense of the distribution of crime. If crime is so concentrated, temporally and spatially, you know, have police departments taken advantage of this and stationed more officers in a given spot at a given time? And has it any had any effect on crime? It's it's a great question. I, I mean, the issue we've always, like I said, we've always known instinctively that crime concentrates. I think any number of sociologists and economists and political scientists uh, have made that observation. Um, but we've never necessarily had all of the granular data in a multiple locations to be able to to make that claim empirically uh, and to show just how much it concentrates across space, time, and, and, and people. Uh, and there's been really revolution policing over the last decade or two uh, through to using data to drive police response, using data to to do what's called hotspot policing or proximity-oriented policing or even problem-oriented policing. All of these are novel doctrines that have emerged just quite recently. Um, and the idea, you know, the, the reason why this is so radical is because police traditionally haven't necessarily been that wedded to using big or even small data to drive policing decisions. Um, you'll often hear police talk about using their gut, using their instincts. They've been on the beat for 30 years. Why would I ever want to resort to some study to you know, tell me where crime takes place? I know where it takes place. That's the kind of attitude, you know, your stereotypical police officer has. The 21st century police officer uh, has, I think, a very different mindset and, and are, are often quite creative with using a range of data sources to better motivate their interventions. But it wasn't until Comstat in the 1990s uh, revolutionized the policing field across the United States and then later in the UK uh, with the introduction of this sort of data-driven policing. And hotspot policing was really the child of that revolution. Um, and all hotspot policing means is the deployment of officers where crime tends to cluster. Um, and it's an incredibly logical, almost intuitive approach when you think about it. Um, it's right. cheap in the sense that you're just reallocating your officers according to where crime might take place. Uh, it's not uncontroversial because some people will say that you're reinforcing certain stigmas that may be associated with those hotspots. But, and here's the, the trick, it's been extraordinarily effective at reducing lethal and non-lethal violence. Um, there have been a number of systemic meta reviews in the literature, sort of the scientific literature, do, running randomized control trials to test out the efficacy of these kinds of interventions. 
And they are, amongst all the different kinds of police tactics and strategies, hotspot policing is shown to be the most effective in reducing crime in the short and medium term. And the most important thing is it doesn't necessarily, when done properly, uh, lead to what's called spillover or displacement effects. It doesn't necessarily push crime from one neighborhood to the next neighborhood, from one street corner to the next street oh, okay. corner. When it's done effectively, so, yeah, so. it actually tends to have a yeah an all-around positive impact. So, uh, you know, it just seems intuitive to folks who think about data. Uh, it was radical and new to those in the police force. So um, what effects have you seen when this is done? Uh, how much of a reduction in crime? Does the type of crime change? You know, what are some of the, um, what's like a, a case study? You don't have to name cities or names or anything, but. No, I mean, I think there's a number. Uh, I mean, the use of data-driven policing is now pretty much mainstream in the United States. There are dozens and dozens of police departments um, all across the Northeast, the, the Midwest, South. Um, the big prominent cities like New York, Chicago, LA, uh, Boston have all experimented with this and in some cases have rolled out full programs. And I, I think pretty much universally, we're seeing positive effects of hotspot policing uh, with you know, significant drops in homicide, um, significant drops in violent crime. I mean, the United States experienced really an unprecedented drop in crime, violent crime, uh, and especially murder uh, over the last 25 years. I mean, it's come down 40%. There was a big debate during the last presidential, well, during the most recent presidential elections about the U.S.'s crime-ridden cities and the rise in homicide. And it's true. There, there was a small spike in uh, about a dozen, dozen and a half cities in the U.S., but if you look at the longer time series, the longer tail, there's been a pretty significant drop across the board. Um, and that's been driven by crime drops in the major cities in the United States in particular. Um, so, you know, New York and L.A., uh, Boston all stand out for having really sizable drops in the last 25 years. And uh, institutions like the Vera Institute, even the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, have all pointed to the importance of data-driven policing and hotspot policing as being uh, a driver of that. What other things have you learned about crime that are surprising or unusual, and what what methods developed to um, you know to try to lower crime? How about how about on the individual level? Are there right? I, you know, I guess obviously a few individuals commit most of the crimes. It's just my guess, but you know, what other things no, about I think crime that's right. have you learned that are unusual? I think that's right. I, I think I mean just just as we think that. You know, most, most the vast majority of of, of crime victimization uh, takes place in takes place in very specific places and times. It's also the case that a relatively small number of people are responsible uh, for a disproportionate amount of the crime. Think of the Pareto principle, um, and it's usually much more concentrated than 2080. It's usually sort of five percent, or even less than five percent of the population responsible for 90 percent of the crime. It, it's you know, with advances in in technology and, and the emergence of all sorts of algorithms to you know, link up data sets and, and, and predict the likelihood of crime taking place. There has been a pretty dramatic evolution of what's called pre-pull, a predictive policing across the United States. And, and these are often inward-facing sort of platforms that are intended to support, help the police anticipate where crime will take place at a very, very high resolution, sort of literally at the street corner or in particular houses. Um, and one of the most uh, controversial new algorithms that have come out um, has been dubbed the, the hot list, or, which has come out of Chicago. And, and essentially, this is a, uh, a an algorithm that combines a whole assortment of variables um, on people's you know, crime records, on their likelihood to be involved in drugs, so their social media profiles, you know, other, other factors. Uh, and they've been able to develop a list of about a thousand 
1,200 individuals in Chicago who are most likely to be victims or perpetrators of crime. And so when a gangland fight breaks out in a particular part of the city, um, what happens is this algorithm then predicts immediately what the degrees of separation are of that of that of the individuals who may have been killed with likely would be killers and or victims and results in police being pre-deployed to go visit their houses, knock on their door, speak with their mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters or them that, and, and to essentially try to take them out of that environment to avoid an escalation in violence. If this sounds a bit like Minority Report, um, you know, <laughs> you, you, would, you wouldn't be far off. And if it makes you feel uncomfortable, there's probably good reason because it raises immediately a whole set of questions about the balance between public safety and obviously personal privacy. Um, and the, the first question that probably comes to one's mind is, you know, A, am I on that list? And then B, why? And then C, how the hell do I get off this list? And, and that's a legitimate set of questions. The, the problem is, uh, is that because these algorithms are proprietary, um, and, and obviously that's where the value is, there's not a lot of incentive for the designers of these algorithms to be open about what's inside the black box. Um, and it's raised a whole bunch of ethical questions uh, about how individuals find themselves locked into these lists and how they are able to get themselves out of them again. Um, and so this is raising, I think, a lot of very important questions right now which probably not only unique to the security field, but probably applicable in many, many other domains of our life, um, about the, this, this question of you know, privacy um, and algorithmic transparency. Uh, so one of the things we've been trying to work on here at the Gahapé Institute and my other think tank uh, called SecDev is to try to promote more transparency, openness uh, about what's inside the black box. We're, we're very open about what are the variables that we consider? What are the underlying principles that we're assuming drive crime? What are the assumptions and how do we weight them? Um, we may not have all the answers, but we think it's really important to be at least clear about the limitations and, and, and be really clear about what's inside uh, these, these formula that we're developing. The other thing we're do doing, which might be interesting, uh, the last couple of years, we've been struck by uh, very high rates of police violence here in Brazil. Not, not an issue that's not unknown in the United States either. Um, but to put, to put the police violence into perspective, uh, here in Brazil, until quite recently, one in every 27 arrests uh, in, in the major cities of this country resulted in a killing. Uh, the equivalent ratio in, say, New York City was one in every 37,000 people. So we had an order of magnitude problem of police violence. And police violence you know, invariably affects all aspects of life, uh, you know, in terms of people's sense of safety on the street, in terms of people's sense of uh, confidence in the public authorities and the government. And so we were trying to figure out a way to make people safer um, by disrupting police violence. And a couple of years ago, working with Google Ideas, which is now Jigsaw, which is the think tank of Google, we designed uh, an Android app that's, again, open source, that runs off mobile phones and turns your phone into a camera. So essentially, it runs your video, audio, GPS feed, uses the accelerometer in your phone. And the idea was to equip police officers with a phone that would be recording everything they were doing in the course of the day, um, that would encrypt the data, send it to the cloud, uh, put it onto a back-end dashboard that would allow supervisors to be able to monitor police movements, performance, uh, but also create a civilizing effect between police uh, and citizens. And so we, we started this in Brazil. We we're doing it with some of the, I would say, the toughest cops on the planet. Uh, we then expanded the project uh, pilot into Johannesburg and Cape Town in South Africa, over to Bulgaria, 
And we've recently started up in Jersey City, actually, in the United States, and we're, we're spreading to more cities in the States. Um, and it's been fascinating because what this does uh, is literally create uh, a, a checks and balances, kind of oversight over police officers. But at the same time, it also gives police officers a sense of protection, uh, both of false accusations, but also, you know, in areas where they might feel uncertain, they can radio in or live stream back to their supervisors and say, look, uh, sir, I'm on my way in, or madam, I'm on my way into a particular, particularly dangerous neighborhood. Um, and they have that sort of sense that there's somebody watching their back. Um, even can, they, can they scroll back in time, for instance, the supervisor and look at the past five minutes if they need to catch up on get, and get context in the situation? Yeah, it, it does. It has an automatic, I think it's two minute feed. So before, um, before it's officially recording, uh, unlike in the States uh, where body cameras have really taken off with large companies like Taser and others, um, there's the default option where we're testing it is on. In other words, the camera is always on and the officer will have to request to turn it off. Uh, so there are protocols to determine when the officer can turn off the phone. For example, the officer's going to the washroom or the officer's uh, you know, having lunch uh, or the officer's speaking to their spouse. Uh, these, there, but there'll be multiple choice and it will immediately send a signal back to the supervisor that the, the device is off. In the States, it's the exact opposite. The default is off. Um, so it's only when the officer is entering a precarious situation that the officer elects to turn it on, which is why so often a lot of the police brutality we, that takes place in the United States is not captured. Um, right. So we, we have the option magically. to do both. Yeah, magically, exactly. So we have the option to do both. Um, at the same time, it stores that video for 90, 100 days, depending on uh, the legal requirements for storing information like this uh, in the cloud. So we're able, you know, supervisor is able to log in. Everything is marked, but the officer is able to log in and check uh, back in time what's happened, uh, you know, on that officer's watch. So, you know, we think, the, again, these technologies raise all sorts of ethical questions, you know, so... If you're in a place where you don't trust police officers, um, do you really feel more confident with the officer having a camera? Uh, what happens if your face gets caught on video and, and you weren't involved in a particular crime? Do you have rights and access oh, to that information? True. You know, so huh. it raises really profound questions about, you know, the civil liberties of citizens and, and what are the obligations of government? And so we spent a, our, our gamble is that this kind of technology is going to be everywhere in the next four to five years. We think it's incredibly disruptive to Taser, which depends on hardware and doesn't use sort of open source or, or software-based solutions running off phones. Um, but our concern, certainly from our vantage point here in Latin America and working in other kind of quite violent parts of the world, is that these kinds of tools are rolled out with appropriate safeguards, with protocols that you know minimize their abuse, with standards that have been tested in the field in some of the, the most difficult places. Because if 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 we don't do that, these, these types of technologies can be used, I think, as much for ill as for good. That's true. That's true. Hmm. Um, how far along are these projects, though, with the, uh, you know, the cell phones of this recording of officers continuously? I mean, are they in, in use or is it uh, yeah. still a pilot? No. Well, we've got um, we're going to have about 4000 users here in Brazil uh, by the beginning of next year. So we're rolling it out in a couple of states. Uh, here. We've had a couple hundred users in South Africa, and it looks like they're going to be scaling it up in uh, Western Cape province and Gauteng provinces, which is where Johannesburg and Cape Town are. Um, 
We're also working with Jersey City, and the mayor there is excited uh, to scale it up. Small city, but we're looking at expanding it to a number of different cities across the United States. Um, so the tool has been, you know, it's put through the paces. We've done a lot of patching of, of any potential problems with, you know, encryption and privacy. Um, so it's actually ready for market, uh, and it's it's ready to go. So on that front, we're 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 already moving ahead. Crime Radar, which is the predictive crime app, is also reasonably well advanced. You need a minimum of four years of data, good georeference data, to make that work. Uh, so it doesn't work in every setting in, in Latin America or Africa or Asia where where data is quite uneven. Um, it's much more suited. Well, because in order to train the algorithm, you need to be able to have that kind of scale of data. I mean, homicide, even though it's quite common here, is, is still a pretty rare event. Uh, so you need to have a pretty high volume of it to be able to start doing meaningful prediction. So having high quality, high resolution information over a number of years uh, just allows you to have much more confidence in the quality of your prediction. We're at about 87, 88%, we think, validity in terms of the prediction. Um, we'd like to get to 99% if possible. The good news is that with machine learning, it's getting better every day, but, but you know, it takes time. Um, we've also got a number of other you know, tools that we're developing, uh, including tools that look at fragility in cities around the world. We've got the largest data set on uh, risks in cities over 250,000 people around the world, which we launched uh, at Davos uh, this year and at TED. Um, and we're designing other platforms to look at you know, a range of other uh, challenges, which uh, I suspect we can get into in another podcast. <laughs> so you is it at the point again I'm I'm focusing on the cameras on the police um do you have any data yet on how it's changed the nature of their policing or how it's changed the amount of crime or you know those kind of things or you're yeah, not at that so stage yet We're still we've done what we've done is basically in we've got about 4000 hours of footage um we've got a number of let's call it good case studies where we've seen incidents caught on film um, and then ultimately reported to supervisors resulting in changes of behavior. Um, what we're now doing uh, with the rollout in Jersey City, and we'll be doing the same in Bogota and Quito here in, in, in Ecuador and Colombia starting next year, is we're doing RCTs, randomized control trials, uh, to test the attribution of these specific interventions to reductions in First, police violence, uh, and second, in citizen complaints, false complaints against police. Uh, those are the two key metrics we're using to judge the performance beyond whether it improves the efficiency or effectiveness uh, of, of resource allocation. So um, it's only through RCTs, by randomizing interventions and by testing it over a particular period of time, that you can come up with, I would say, uh, a credible uh, attribution of the success of one's intervention. Everything else is nice, uh, but doesn't meet that gold standard that I, I think required when the gold standard for for being able to test the efficacy and, and uh, causality of of any intervention, uh, including you know new technologies like body cameras. Um, and we expect that we'll probably have results from Jersey City in the next two to three months. Um, to demonstrate the statistical significance of the impact. But one thing to say is, is that um, there is a growing evidence base around the use of body, body-worn cameras in the United States and specifically in the UK. Uh, the seminal study was done in, in a city called Rialto in California uh, a couple of years ago, and it demonstrated uh, an upwards of an 80% 
drop in reports of police excessive use of force. Um, and I think a more than 60% drop in citizen, false citizen complaints against police. Uh, so it was a very powerful effect in a small trial of about 50 or 60 officers, if I'm not mistaken. Um, more recently, there's been a major study done in the United Kingdom, focusing primarily on the Met, the Metropolitan Police of, of uh, in London. Uh, and they also found a very statistically significant drop in police reports of violence, as well as complaints against uh, complaints rendered by citizens. Maybe less so uh, than in the United States, but probably because there's less police abuse in, in the UK. So we didn't expect to see the fall to be as significant. Um, but more and more studies are coming out using these sort of RCT type approaches to demonstrate the, the relative, the real and relative effectiveness of body-worn cameras. And I, I want to be really clear. I mean, obviously, you know, our goal here is to improve safety of citizens uh, and to maximize the protection of police officers. I mean, we, we think there could be a, a win-win uh, outcome here. Um, but we will, as, as always, be guided by the evidence. And if what we find is, you know, that we're not seeing a positive effect, we're seeing a null effect, obviously that will raise questions. Yeah, that's a huge drop. That's amazing. Yeah, I had one last question for you. Uh, you know, we'll be wrapping in just a couple of minutes. Um, you mentioned that some people may appear on a policeman's camera system that don't want to appear on it. But if the footage is going to be private, is that a problem? Or is there a, a scrubbing system that's set up uh, for certain things that appear on the camera that, you know, people don't want to have seen? I mean, from our perspective, uh, absolutely, citizens should have a right to their privacy and, and should be able to request a video, uh, and, and, and police departments should be required to redact that video uh, as appropriate and or introduce the, the safeguards that are necessary. And so, you know, one of the things we've done within the, the system is to minimize the possibility for data manipulation, for data leakage, uh, for data hacking. Obviously, no system is 100% secure. But we've gone through a number of trials to to reduce the likelihood of data being manipulated on on route, as well as introducing you know watermarks on every single frame of the photo, introducing checks and balances for who can enter into the system, um, log requiring login, identify, et cetera. However, uh, at the end of the day, it, it comes down to the law and the particular inclination of the police department uh, to determine how and in what circumstances information will be released to the public. And in the United States, where you've got quite sophisticated laws and, and quite robust institutions uh, that are <laughs> there to enforce them, uh, this has been a, a big challenge with the role of the body cameras, because depending on which state you're in, there are different, uh, let's say, normative infrastructures and um, responses to the police authorities, depending on where you are. So take the case of right. Seattle um, and, and Washington State. Uh, well, there, when body cameras were introduced and, and, and seen uh, in a way quite as a controversial intervention by the public, uh, the immediate response from the, let's say, the civil liberties community uh, and by hackers in particular, the hacking community was to demand uh, to bombard the police department with requests for redacted video. Uh, what this did was effectively shut down the program because the police department spent all of its time painstakingly redacting you know, various bits of footage to satisfy them of freedom of strategy. It got so bad that the head of police tweeted out uh, a kind of white flag and said, hey, can we please find some you know, reasonable Solomonic way forward uh, to, to, to come out with a, a solution here that will meet your needs for... The solution was to put the video uh, 
uh, online and, and to muffle the noise and to, sh- to, to, to make the individuals in the video uh, sort of obscure so that if individuals in civil society wanted to access the video, they could make a request for a particular segment um, you know, based on what they could see in this YouTube channel. It wasn't a perfect solution, but it was one that they came up with in Seattle. Meanwhile, in New York City, uh, the police have basically said, forget about it. We're not going to give you any information. Uh, you know, we will, think that we will determine when and how information is released. I think the key point here is that depending on, on which state you're in, which county you're in, you're going to see different kinds of responses. And if you can imagine it's complicated in the United States, well, it's infinitely more complicated in many other parts of the world where there frankly isn't any regulatory system or any clear laws and legislation around any of this. So we're really entering a wild west uh, when it comes to public safety and civil Yeah, it's true. I mean, couple that with facial recognition. I mean, there's all kinds of privacy issues and, you know, two sides want one thing, one wants the other. So, you know, I can see it difficult. Absolutely. I, I think the key point is that it's, it's coming. Uh, and and this, this kind of technology, whether we like it or not, unfortunately, is going to be, you know, very much with us in, in the years ahead. Um, and so it's, it's, that's why it's so important that we have these kinds of discussions and debates. I, I would add one final point, which is that the um, American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, uh, and groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and others who have come out quite strongly in opposition to these invasive types of technologies, have come out actually and said, you know, under certain circumstances when applied with fidelity and with due restraints, body cameras, open source or otherwise, are actually technologies that can generate a positive outcome. Um, and so we've been working, for example, with Human Rights Watch, um, which is a big international human rights organization, uh, on exploring when and what conditions these kinds of tools are appropriate and what are the checks and balances that we need to minimize, as you say, uh, you know, the, that invasiveness on privacy. So, you know, it's a challenging debate. It, 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 it's provocative on so many levels, but it's coming. Uh, in fact, it's here. Uh, and so we need to engage yeah. it now. Well, it's, yeah, the last point I guess I'll make is that that's why it sounds like it's so critical to get data and to rely on it, which is the whole methodology of your organization instead of uh, emotions, because there's just so many stakes and points of view and emotions and all that. And data is really the, uh, at the end of the day, that's that's what speaks the loudest if people are listening. You know? I think so. I mean, I, obviously, you know, without information uh, and without information at a, at a high resolution um, data, as we call it, uh, it's very difficult to come up with clear priorities to make appropriate allocations of investment, uh, to measure outcomes uh, of our interventions, especially in this climate of austerity and scarce resources. Uh, so to me, data is, is central to this question of accountability. And it's radical. I, I think often people's eyes glaze over when we start talking about mobilizing data for uh, for public safety and security. But, you know, it was only in 2008 the United Nations published for the first time information on homicides around the world. Uh, and the reason was that governments, the member states of the United Nations, didn't want information on homicide published because it would embarrass the politicians. It would affect foreign direct investment. Uh, it could have a dampening effect on tourism, uh, all sorts of reasons. It would, it would reflect their incompetence in gathering data. You name it. And so we're really talking uh, about sort of mobilizing information on things like lethal violence and crime uh, in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And 
the advanced computing that we now have, the processing power that we now have, the democratization of technologies and the bubbling ecosystems of innovation that are taking place around the world, not just in the North, but also in the global South, mean that we can start using data uh, and setting it free and, and precipitating a much more balanced and fulsome debate on, on some of the most pressing issues uh, of our time. Right? You know, and I think at the end of the day, though, of course, statistics don't cry. You know, we need to also have a, a careful rendering and, and reflection on perceptions uh, and how people engage with information, how they engage with data, because just by virtue of having good information doesn't necessarily translate into you acting on it. Right. Often people act That's in all true. sorts of perverse and sort of backwards ways, ways that are unexpected. Uh, so we also need to get better at translating that information um, and communicating in a way that's intelligible, accessible, meaningful, um, which is why I think we do a lot of work on developing sort of open source mobile-based apps that are hopefully free, but also that are really easy to use and grasp, even if they're molded by extremely complex information. Um, it, it, unless we're able to communicate this information, it's very difficult to budge people's positions. So I think you need a bit yeah. of both. Um, but but I agree fully with you that that, that you know data is what's really and the openness of data is what's really driving these. Uh, fabulous transformations in public safety and security. What are some resources uh, that folks, governments, corporations, et cetera, can look to to find more about your institute and your initiatives? So I would go to the website, which is www.igarape.org.br. Um, if you're interested in, in looking at global arms transfers and ammunition transfers, Check out our Mapping Arms Data Tool, uh, the MAD platform, which is a composite of all the world's imports and exports of small arms and ammunition over the last 20 years. If you're interested in the open source body camera, uh, check out our Copcast application. It's on the website. Um, if you're interested in Crime Radar, uh, which is the predictive app that tracks crime in Rio, uh, you can find it on our website or go straight to rio.crimeradar.org. Um, and obviously, if you're interested in any other tools or developing on homicide or cities, uh, you don't have to go much further than our website. It's all available for free. Well, I don't want to hold you any longer. This has been a great interview. I mean, there's a lot more to talk about, but uh, I'm glad you guys are doing this work. It's impactful. And I just want to say thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.